Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Does it get better than this? Very exciting. Very exciting. Okay, let's just start. I was just telling the producer that I'm a little concerned, not deeply concerned. I have other concerns. But I'm saying today's show feels, it feels choppy. And I'll tell you why. As I was putting together my notes for the show, and you all know, I mean, I've talked about it, how I do it. I've Things kind of pique my interest during the week in the in the most obscure moments, I'll be walking the dog and thinking, gee, why do you have to go to college? You could listen to a whole course on a podcast and get everything you want to know about African-American history, the rule of the royal, you know, of the royal families over the years in Europe. You could listen. And I'm thinking, well, that could be used in a show. And I keep getting all of these moments and I will send myself a note. I have a special email address to where I send these notes. And then I sit, I find a nice chunk of time and I put together the program. And it dawned on me that as the war in Israel continues, I am sending myself fewer and fewer articles that relate to human folly, human misdeeds, politics en masse, that I'm listening to the hunger of both my heart and my belly. And I'm sensing, I don't know if you're sensing it, those of you who listen in each week and kind of drop me notes, this need to gloam on to the spiritual, to the ethereal, to try to home in on the purpose of our lives here, certainly here in Israel, but all of us as inhabitants of the planet. And as I'm putting together my notes, I'm thinking, my goodness, people want to know, what do I think about this? What do I think about this? This political, that blank, nothing. My happiness, my joy comes more and more as the joy of a first grader wearing a fresh new skirt and new Mary Jane patent leather shoes in the 1950s and going and knowing that soon I will learn to read. Soon I will know the secrets of the world. Everything lays in front of me. It's the only thing that brings me peace today. Wondering what you're thinking about that. Who is with us this morning? We have the U.S. listening in. That's so bad. We have three time zones. Is it three time zones or actually four, including Hawaii? We have three time zones, and I know that Kathy is listening in this morning, and I am just over the moon. Okay, that's my big shout-out. Canada is with us this morning. Good morning, Canada. Ireland is with us again this week. 
Boker Tov Eretz Israel. A lot of things that I'll be mentioning today um, pertain to us and our precious, fragile, delightful moral lives here in the Holy Land. UK is with us. New Zealand is with us again this morning. And Europe. We like that Europe came up. <laughs> when we can break it down, I'll let you know. And um, I'm thinking about the UK. I have to tell you a little bit on a humorous note. My husband, the famous Ronnie, is off. He never goes anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere, certainly not without me. Not that he's not allowed. But I tend to be a little bit of an imposing personality. He never goes anywhere. And today, Ronnie is going with an overnight bag. He's going on a five-day trip to England, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. His granddaughter is being bat mitzvah. And I remember that when I had new babies in the house, the house was always a disaster. There were baby bags and there were bottles and there were piles of diapers and snugglies and what, what are those things that kids wear? The onesies. Everything was all over. You could never get it together. A grown man over 70 years of age is going away with an overnight bag for five days. You have to see what this house looks like. I mean, ironing boards and piles of laundry. And do you need this? And do you need that? And what religious books? And absolute craziness. I had to escape by doing a radio show. That gave me a, a little bit of a reprieve. So look around. Everybody in the UK, look around for poor Ronnie. He's a, a big guy with a little keeper. Okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, so I told you about that. I was um, thinking, I was very unnerved. Many of us who use Facebook, there's a campaign. I don't know if it's a campaign or a calling out. People are posting photographs of themselves. Oh, South Africa is with, we cannot do the show without South Africa. My second home for sure. Um, so, there's a Facebook campaign, many of you are aware of, they're asking people, I didn't know what it was for, they, who is they? They, I found out later, uh, my friend Moshe wrote to me and said, you know that you're participating in a big AI research product, uh, project, they're compiling information, and um, so I feel a little squeamish, and I like to think that I don't follow the crowd, but hello, sucker, sucker. I posted a photograph, two photographs of myself, 20 and 23 or 22, 21. They wanted us at 21. They. Okay. I hope they are listening in. And after I did this, and then there was, oh, beautiful. Oh, nice. And I looked at other people, pictures of people, how cute they were, how lovely. It unnerved me. I didn't know why. I felt unnerved. I always say how happy I am to be in the moment we're in. We can't have yesterday. How many of us live with regrets? Today really is the not just the first day of the rest of our lives, but we have the ability to make today the best day of the rest of our lives, starting today. And yet I looked at those photographs and I became unnerved. And I'm still working on that. I'm trying to think why that was. Um... Another, just a light, again, nothing we hear is really laugh-riding, laugh-riot humorous these days in Israel. A lot of guilt, a lot of guilt with laughing. People are in terrible pain. People are burying, burying their soldiers. What can I say? A client came to me late this week. She had trouble getting here because there was a funeral down the block. And 
all of the neighbors. It's something that unless you witness it, my words pale. All the neighbors come out, men, women, children, elderly in wheelchairs, holding up Israeli flags as the hearse passes by on the way to the cemetery. Imagine mitzvah shel emet, the ultimate mitzvah, the ultimate seeing someone off to their final resting place. Someone who has given their lives that we may exist and grow and prosper. And it's cold out there these days. It's wet out there. And in Israel, it's just another day. We're all impacted. And yet, and yet, we have moments, you know, you pick up a book, can you stick with your novel? Still, nobody's sleeping well here. Anybody from Israel, drop me a note, Andrea at NewstalkRadio.com. Tell me if you're sleeping well and how you're doing it. Because it's the, uh, <laughs> it's the, the ultimate question these days. Um, and yet, this week, kookiest, maybe it's because we're being just a little kinder to each other in a country not really known for being touchy-feely and being very soft-spoken to one another. I had two interactions this week with famous Israeli bureaucratic institutions. If I tell you I was putting it off and putting it off because it's always unpleasant to speak with insurance providers, whether it be medical or home. And I spoke with two different insurance providers this week. I kid you not. We talk about, we just got out of Hanukkah where we talked about uh, the miracle of the Maccabees. The Maccabees. We just got through the Parsha and the Torah with the splitting of the Red Sea. I had two Israeli insurance providers tripping over themselves to provide me with superior service and to help me figure out how I could gain coverage, gain additional coverage for problems in my life. Yes, indeed, the Messiah is on his way. Um, yeah, okay. Chesed. I think everyone here is trying to be a little more chesedic, a little kinder, a little softer, a little stepping back and trying to imagine what it's like to be walking in the moccasins of another. Last night at dinner, um, I had mentioned, I, I, I listened to several Torah lectures this week and I was discussing um, this week's Parsha, which we're going to talk a lot about toward the end of the program, Mishpatim. Mishpatim is laws. Torah portion, okay? Uh, Mishpatim is laws. 
And here we are, we're speaking of the Torah and everything is so dramatic and everything is so exciting and everything is so, um, I mean, seas are splitting, Paro is punishing, the Jews are complaining, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden is erupting, we're going through, going through, going through, and suddenly commercial, bla- commercial break. Here are the laws of mixing, of not mixing, flax and cotton. Here are the laws of how you slaughter a sheep to make it proper, what part you eat. Here are the laws about, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, when does the regular programming resume? This is so boring. And yet suddenly, by immersing myself, by listening to those who are so much wiser so better educated than I am, so deeply immersed in Torah scholarship, my eyes were popping out of my head. So we're having this discussion. Let's get back to the dinner, okay, the turkey next stew. Um, We're over dinner, and my husband talked about some of the things that are mentioned in the Torah that are impossible, that never happen. And yet we're we're obligated by laws to know the laws, what happens. And there are, there are many uh, examples of if a, if a woman is wayward. Um, notice I tossed that one in there. <laughs> anyway. And he was talking about unloading a camel, your neighbor's camel. And if a camel is suffering and you go to the neighbor and you say, your na- you know, your, your camel has so many... Uh, such a burden on your camel. What are the obligations of unloading the burden from the camel? Um, yeah, well, actually, the Torah talks about the donkey, but my husband was talking about the camel. But what he was talking about the camel was he was saying, How can we pass somebody's donkey that is laden and the donkey's legs are buckling or the camel um, and they're buckling? And the animal is in pain. Are we really stopping and knocking on the neighbor's door and letting them know? Or do we become awash with compassion? And what the Torah is really telling us here is sensitize, buddy. Feel it. Don't analyze it. Understand that your neighbor is in pain. Understand that someone's marriage is in trouble. Understand that a child feels marginalized. Understand, build it up. You know, every day we say the prayer, Shema Yisrael. There's not a Jew, even a truly, truly secular Jew, that does not know even the opening lines of Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Okay? But the opening paragraph, when we talk about this sensitivity, the words of the Shema, I'm going to race through it in the Hebrew. It says, The es Hashem Elokecha, Bechol Levovecha, Uvechol Nafshecha, Uvechol 
Meodecha. You shall love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your resources, with all your might, some of the translations say. Now, here is where it goes. It says, um, I'm just looking here. Um, right, oh, yeah, you want somebody to stay with me here? Um, when it says, when it says, Oh, yeah, here. Okay. Um, you should let these matters that I command you today be upon your heart. What do you mean be upon your heart? Why not be in your heart? What do you mean upon your heart? God knows how to put feelings in the heart. When we are close to something, very often we know about lightening our neighbor's burden. We know about giving more charity. We know about dressing modestly and speaking kindly. We know about these things. And what we are encouraged to do all the time, and the Shema reminds us of this, is to minimally, all of us, none of us are exempt, put it on that shelf that lays upon your heart have that compassion nearby so that when the heart is ready to totally absorb it you don't have to go out on a big search you don't have to go on to all these life changing journeys you don't have to join some kind of Jewish ashram. Because minimally, it's upon your heart. And all it has to do is fall in. To be sensitive to the laden work animal. You don't have to go and tell your neighbor. Because your compassion extends to the sensitivity of even an animal. And this is the idea behind chesed. Chesed is the idea of to ascertain what it is that another person wants, not imposing what you think they should accept, what you think they should have, where you think they should be morally, spiritually, materially. The chesed is to feel the weight, the weights of their burdens and to act accordingly. When we talk about sensitivity, 
this one is going to, I hope I, I hope I don't burst out crying on air. So, so, finally, I heard in one of these Torah lectures something that really spoke to my heart. One of the things that has kept, I know that a, 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 um, a, a binding around my heart and that kept me separated in my heart from Yidin, from Jews who live in the Galut was the idea that some people's lives are continuing as they dream, as they plan, without that sensitivity to the realities of our lives here in Israel. And I'm scared to say it because I think, I believe, yeah, it was Rabbi Goldberg, actually. It was Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who had just arrived back to his community in Boca Raton after spending several weeks here in Israel. To my understanding, if I have any Boca listeners in here, um, I understand that he has children living here, he has siblings living in Israel, and he's very, very close, comes and brings packages to not just strange Chayalim's soldiers, but he has many in his congregation who have come to Israel to fight the fight. And he spoke about the reality of our existence here and that the community and certainly American Jews have to be sensitive when you have friends in Israel and you're posting about your vacations and you're redecorating projects and your you know, children's soccer games, all the delicious I'm not going to say frivolities because a lot of things aren't frivolous, but the joyous, materially rich lives on while we are actually fighting for our actual existence. And what Rabbi Goldberg said, what has been in my heart is show some sensitivity. It's hard for us to view those posts and, uh, Maybe just pull back a bit. Um, all right. Let's see now. Okay. We're going to get into um, In the area, let me just have a sip of my tea. One second. Thank you, said the bracha before the program. Oh, another thing. Truthfully, I thought that this was sort of humorous. Any of you? Notice we do not do this on film, which is good. It's not a, um, a Zoom show where you could actually see. Maybe one day we'll do that. Uh, where you can see me and little pictures of you can come up. But on today's program, something struck me. And um, somebody I heard recently talking about learning in summer camp. I've worked in Jewish camps for many, many years. And one of the things that I noticed was that in the summer camp learning, we always had a kollel. It was a, a group of yeshiva boys who came to the camp and they learned there. They learned with their Rebbe and they would play basketball and they would go to the pools or the lakes and they would do things. But when it came to their Torah learning, I would see them dressed outside, sitting under a tree with their rabbis and they were all dressed in their black pants 
and or dark pants and a white shirt. Nobody was wearing jackets and um, and ties in the heat of upstate New York. But it was very, very interesting. And I never questioned why they were dressed. I mean, they're just sitting outside. We're in summer camp. Uh, still, I mean, you could wear a pair, pair of chinos, right? And it dawned on me, and I heard from this rabbi that, you know, when we open the Torah, we're literally entering the world of our legacy. We're standing in front of the commander-in-chief. If we're invited to an audience with a Canadian prime minister, I'm looking at my, my list of visitors here, or any European head of state, would we go in shorts with our hairy legs sticking out and a T-shirt that says polo on it? Would we take the time? And thinking about it, I, I laughed. I said, because this is our opportunity. So I'm sharing with you that even though you cannot see me for this morning's show, I am wearing lipstick and eye makeup. That's how, how honored I am to share this time with you. Okay, just as I got dressed this morning and put on a little lipstick and eye makeup, I know that you too have dressed for the occasion. Um, okay, we all know, we can't avoid it. The charges against Israel. My gosh, my gosh, what are we not guilty of? What arena of public life, international public life, have we not, with our Jewish tentacles of evil, infected, integrated, and somehow want to take over? I see these, I see these, these posts, these videos, morons, morons with degrees, morons with certificates, but morons that know that those who don't know are listening. Nature abhors a vacuum. And these morons with degrees will tell you that we are starving the Palestinians. We are drowning the Palestinians. We are slaughtering Palestinian babies. Where do we even go with that? It is so vile. It's so repugnant. It is the antithesis of the Jewish nation. I kid you not. When the I tell you that the only solace that those who loathe us, all of those who loathe us in Gaza, the only solace that has been available to them has come through Jewish kindness. It's their leadership that is keeping the supplies from them and always has. It is their leadership, paren sick, close paren, that has kept 
all of your tax dollar donations from reaching those who needed it? Where is their uprising against those who destroy them? And yet, what is it? What is this perverse obsession with the world to point their fingers, to be blind, to completely ignore what is laid in upon our shoulders, to have no compassion for the holiest nation that exists in the world. Dennis Prager brought up this week. I, I, one of the things that make me laugh, my gosh, not dry bar, not nearly as much as Dennis Prager, who said, if we are guilty of genocide, it is the most ineffective, I'm, 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 I'm not quoting exactly, but it is the most ineffective genocide. Jews who generally... We, we rake in the Nobel Prizes. We absolutely provide the world, number one, with the best medicine, the best artificial intelligence, the best technology. We suck at genocide. Because since 1950, the Arab population of Gaza has grown fivefold. What, you didn't know about that? You didn't hear about that? When they marched in the street and they said, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free of what? Those who are nurturing them, those who are medicating them, those who are helping them, those who yearn to educate them? Yeah, maybe we should just stick to controlling the banking and the media in the world, okay? But we're impotent, impotent against all of those claims that are hurled against us. And why are they believed? Why? I opine. <coughs> Excuse me. Because people are lazy. We've grown soft. No one does the work. No one says, golly gee, I don't know. Let me learn more. Can those Jews really be that evil? What am I not getting? While we're wringing our hands, let us understand. Do you know who's the head of the UN Women's Rights Commission? This is not the comedy hour. It's Iran. Iran. And the world sits by, nodding their collective head and muttering. We mutter under our communal breath. Shh, don't worry. This too will pass. Everything will be all right. So the question is, is it too late? What am I doing here, preaching to the choir? I listen to shows that are preaching to the choir. So 
what are we demanding? Those of us wringing our hands, what are we demanding from our leader? Oh, good morning. Barbados is with us today. Very nice. What are we demanding from our leadership? I propose that the demands we make, okay, I guess it's the glass houses section. I propose that the demands we make should be first and foremost of ourselves and our communities. Just last week, I think it was just last week, we learned about Yitro, Jethro's contribution to bringing order, seder, to the rules of the judiciary. I believe that if anybody is listening into this show, whether live or on podcast, you have access to a computer, so you must have electricity. Each of our homes our mini worlds with our own sets of conduct under hopefully a Torah, uh, a, an, an umbrella of morality. So from these factories that we have been charged with, what products are we sending out each day toward the workplace? from our homes to the halls of learning, from our homes to all arenas of social interaction. Are our homes merely places to drop off book bags and sit like zombies in front of screens, eating separately from one another, and again, leaving each day anew without purpose or moral clarity? What exactly is it that we're winging toward each day? It's my proposal that we re-enlist, re-up our connection to life by scaling back on the mega expectations, our global awareness and hand-wringing disappointments of entities in entities like the UN UNRWA, another moral cesspool, The Hague, and anything to do with Greta Thunberg. We can put our feet down, stamp, and forbid Hollywood and other woke pundits from entering our holy zones and imposing there, which way is the wind blowing today morality upon our holy homes, upon the precious arenas that we've been entrusted to protect and nourish. We have an opportunity today, starting today, to stop, to reorganize our thinking that shallow people who are filled with chutzpah Where does this chutzpah come from? It's derived from being thinner than us or richer than us or more undiscriminating with their social and sexual interactions. We can stop them from entering our homes and raising our children and grandchildren. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, it's too late. My family is grown and gone. My children, they've already intermarried. 
I've made so many mistakes in my life. I I can't start observing the Sabbath or keeping kosher or learning Torah or reconnecting with my parents slash friends slash children from whom I'm alienated. There's a wonderful term. I know that there was a very big book. I think it was published by Aisha Torah. I don't know who published it first. Um, called Eye of the Needle. And this term, don't look it up on the internet because you're going to get a lot of Jesus stuff, okay? It was first coined, hello, in the Talmud. Talmud Brachot. And in Talmud Brachot, it speaks of the idea of an elephant going through the eye of a needle as a metaphor for that which is impossible, what we cannot do. But this passage discusses, discusses dreams and it quotes Rabbi Yonatan as saying, a man is shown in dream only what is suggested by his own thoughts. And this, support, this statement is supported by Rabbi who says, this is proved by the fact that a man is never shown in a dream a date palm of gold or an elephant going through the eye of a needle, implying that this is because they are random and irrational thoughts. But in the Midrash, in the Song of Songs, it's noted that at the splitting of the sea, God told the children of Israel, open up for me an opening like the eye of a needle, and in turn, I will enlarge it to an opening through which wagons can enter. This is an understanding as a call for the Jewish people to reach out to God, reach up to God. And that if one turns to God, making a small little slit in his or her heart, God can do anything for them. These are two separate thoughts, but they create a beautiful message in the arena of faith. I mean, I wouldn't naturally dream of an elephant fitting through the eye of a needle. But even the impossible can be accomplished through trust. You know, on days where it's very bleak here, on days where we dare or get lazy, or let our thoughts go to places regarding the war that we cannot go, I remember the story of the Maccabees. When we told our children the story of the Maccabees and the picture books had pictures of brave, strong, look like our chayalim, our soldiers who are buff, wearing armor across their chests and bands around their, what are those parts of the arms? The, uh, no, the pecs of the chest, the upper arm, you know, the thick part. And they were yeshiva bochers. These were not warriors at heart. Biceps, thank you. <laughs> Biceps. I spent time in the gym, but most of the time my head is laying on the on the floor of the treadmill. But anyway, um, do you know 
how many Maccabees there were. I grew up until the age of 68 without realizing that the entire uprising was led by not thousands, not hundreds, 13. If 13 Maccabees could save the Jewish people from extinction, what exactly is our thought? We all can do through the eye of a needle. I know that I'm not promising, but hopefully tonight I'm doing something that's very out of character for myself. And that is I'm going to be going to a demonstration. A demonstration here in Israel by the government office that's reflective of my values and my attitude toward the war. Naturally, I'm lazy. I tell myself I work hard enough. My voice won't make a difference. It's cold out there. But you can't preach it and not do it. On Sunday night, I've been invited to a woman's concert. I hate these things. I don't like going out. I want to stay home. If you're in Israel, drop me a note. I'll send you the links. Digging down, rooting ourselves in our communal mission. Not saying leave it to others. It's too late. I cannot. This Sabbath, even for those who have never observed the Sabbath, we have an opportunity to dedicate our day of rest to those who are unable yet because of terrible circumstances taking place in that swamp called Aza. They can't observe, but we can. We can make our connection to this blessed gift that God gave us, that seventh day of complete spiritual renewal for a deeper purpose, not just to go through the motions, light the candles, check the lights, make the bracha, eat the food, but make it richer, make it deeper, be more grateful. This marvelous mitzvah, the mitzvah of doing nothing but doing nothing even better and doing nothing with more meaning than the week before. Rabbi Goldberg spoke about 
being in uh, Beit Shemesh, there's a, a shopping mall, there are a lot of shopping malls, shopping malls all over, not as much as in South Africa, but a lot of shopping malls here. And he was in a shopping mall in a restaurant and he saw a waiter and the waiter, I mean, what part of him wasn't pierced? What part of him wasn't tattooed? And it was a glot kosher restaurant, of course, it was Rabbi Goldberg eating there. And yet he was taken aback. The waiter had tzitzis. He was wearing ritual fringes. He couldn't stop himself. He stopped. He said, I must ask you. You're clearly. What's with the tzitzis? What's with the fringes? And he said, ever since the war, I don't know. I cannot commit to Sabbath. I cannot commit yet to wearing a kippah. I cannot commit yet. But somehow, the idea on the morning of October 8th, I put on ritual fringes and I have worn them every day since. They speak to me. And so I ask all of us, What speaks to you? What teeny, tiny place? We think it's too late. If you are breathing in and breathing out today, the day is rife with opportunity. Dare to be weird to your neighbors, to your children, to your spouse. Honor heaven by today taking upon yourself just that one thing. You know, I'm I'm sharing very personally. I have two grandchildren who live in a house where there is nothing religiously observed. And when I used to visit them, I would sort of keep my religiosity, you know, trying to straddle both worlds. And I don't do it anymore. It's so delightful. It is so delightful to see them say, Grandma, you forgot to shut the light in the refrigerator. Or say, no, Grandma doesn't eat that. Or to say, um, Grandma's going to say the words before she drinks her coffee. Don't turn off the light because Grandma won't be able to read. It's the eye of a needle. Dare to be weird for the sake of heaven. You've got this. All right, let's see. Um, oh, very important. Well, we, oh, I'm looking at the time. It's racing. I promised the producer, I said, this is going to be like a five-minute show. Not so much. Um, so for all of us, as, I, as we embrace, it's sort of, um, you know, hands across the world, hands across the planet. Why was, here's a question we have to ask ourselves as we're learning all the laws, why was only half of a shekel brought by each Jew for the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle? Why, why, why a half a shekel? And I'm not going to wait for all of you to answer because I'm having trouble with the computer. I can't hear you shouting. But um, there are a couple of answers, there's a lot of answers. You know, why does a Jew answer a question with a question? Why shouldn't a Jew? Anyway, um, one answer might be that a person is taught to know that all of his efforts in the service of God would be that he would reach 
half of his capacity. Remember they used to say, I don't know if that's still true anymore. They used to say that um, we only use one-tenth of our brain power. So they say, well, what if I would use 20% because I'd be smart? And then I was told, well, then you would gain more more ability to learn more. It's always 10%. I don't know how accurate that is. So anybody who thinks they're giving their share and that they've done enough, I've done it all, is expressing an arrogance. To say, I've served God with all my strength, no, you've done half. But there's a little twist on that. You can't give, you can't give a whole shekel because then you might say, I'm done. We are nothing by ourselves. We are at best half by ourselves. We need one another to achieve shleimut. We daven in a quorum. You can't. There's certain things you cannot do by yourself. We need one another. And that half of a shekel, the obligatory half a shekel, is indeed a reminder. Okay, let me see here. I'm cutting this down. Here we go. Um, okay, so here's going to be a real eye-opener. <laughs> Hold on to your wallets, boys and girls. Hmm. Okay. In, um, in the Torah, in, in Shemot, in the book of Shemot, in the Torah, um, the, the, here's a saying. If you lend, one of the laws is, if you lend money to my people, to the poor that are with you, do not be to him as a demanding creditor, nor shall you place any interest upon him. The mitzvah, you know, we are the creators of the free loan society. The mitzvah of free loans to the needy is one of, it's a, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment based upon the divine belief that God and Torah, not man, control wealth and possessions. Now, this is very different from civil law. Torah law requires that loans be made, even if there's no security present, to ensure payment, or repayment, I should say. In um, the... the Rabbi, Rabbi Samuel Raphael Hirsch says, um, we all have those old, uh, those old chumishes. They've been replaced with the art scroll, you know, the five books of Moses. But he says in those blue Pentateuchs, he explains that the law of interest-free loans is equal to the ranks of those of Shabbat, the Sabbath, um, Shemitah, the sabbatical, and, um, you know, every seven years letting the fields lay fallow, Critical, not an option, an obligation, and Yovel, the Jubilee, or the 50th years, to serve as both evidence and reminders that it is God, not the UN, not UNRWA, okay? God, who rules over the world and over Israel. Just as we give up work on Shabbat, giving up agriculture and the demand for the payment of debts in the Shemitah year, and the giving up title to purchased property and persons in the Yovel year. What does that do? It all proclaims that God is the master and the owner of the universe. The giving up of that perfectly justified demand for interest on loans, it's ordained to show that we are to consider God as the real owner and the master of even our 
uh, impermanent, movable properties. You know, according to the Or Chaim, some people wonder, why does, why does this guy have more than me? And yet, some people do not merit to receive their livelihood straight from heaven. For these, God gathers together much wealth into one person's hands so that all those in needs can be supported by him. A rich man is obligated to support the poor, not out of mercy. That becomes subjective. But by Torah law, if a poor man's money is in your pocket, you're only lending him what is his own. If we're lending him what is rightfully his, then we must not act as if we are better than he is because we are being supported by his wealth. The Sifre Kohen holds, it would have been better if there was no such thing as money in the world. I know that this is like a big, <laughs> a big discussion in Chavrutot, in learning groups, okay? But nevertheless, if there is money, it has to be used for the sake of heaven by helping people, especially with free loans. Uh, in the Sefer Chinuch, it's pointed out that God could surely provide the poor with all that is needed without relying on people to provide tzedakah. Tzedakah, poorly, tra a wonderful translation of the crappily translated word charity. Okay, or free loans. However, we're created in his image. And consequently, we are emissaries. And this is what brings us merit. As we learn in Avot, at the time of one's death, he is accompanied not by his gold or silver, but by Torah and good deeds. Um, the word... Okay, this I went over this morning with the husband, okay, because I was having trouble with the Hebrew. Um, lahalvot, the word lahalvot can mean to lend as well as to accompany. So which money is going to accompany us when we leave this world? Only the tzedakah and the interest-free loans that were provided by us to the poor, along with the good deeds that we did in our lifetime, this is what's going to accompany us into the next world. Um, yeah. How serious does this go? Love this. One of the laws is brought down. Check this out. Quote, if you take your neighbor's night garment as collateral, you must return it to him before evening. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. Close quote. Rabbi Farhi teaches that part of Jewish outlook has always been to look out for and to take care of those that are less fortunate than we are. You know, but the Torah seems to mandate even more than that. Duh. If someone is so poor that the collateral they offer you to get a loan is their pajamas or their blanket, every night we are obligated to return these objects so that he can sleep with them. Can you imagine? 
what a tear, what a, what an, what a nightmare that is. It's a big hassle. So it seems that God is saying that he will hear the cry of a poor man because God models compassion. That's the compassion we're supposed to imitate and absorb and practice. The question is, why his compassion results in the lender being punished. Why am I being punished for that? The lender is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He loans money based on the value of collateral. Why he doesn't get paid the whole, you know, the whole point is that he takes that collateral until the borrower pays up. Isn't that what collateral is? You give it back to him every night when he needs it. Why is he going to ever pay us back? Aha. Uh-huh. This is what's aggravating Rashi. Rashi adds this. God says, how much do you owe me? Does your soul not rise to me each night as you sleep for judgment? It fails to pass sometimes. And yet each day I return your soul to you when you wake up. You too should return his objects each night and come back for them in the day. You know, perhaps what Rashi is adding is that when God says he will listen, quote, for I am compassionate, close quote, he isn't referring to his mercy for the poor man. Rather, God is saying to each of us, I will hear the poor man's cry, even though it's undeserving. Because when you need me to have compassion for you each and every day, I do. I would therefore expect you to do the same for the destitute, to find it in your heart, to be merciful, even though you don't have to be. Go out of your way for others. Someone has gone out of his way for you, or at least someone with a capital O. Beautiful, beautiful symmetry. We're obligated to make sure that someone else gets to sleep so that we will wake up. Ultimately, when we give to others, we are the biggest beneficiaries. Shabbat Shalom Umivorach from Jerusalem. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.